In my right hand is an ice-cold bottle of Fentiman's Cherry Tree Cola. In my left hand is a Bible. Let's do a show about... Boy, that, that's actually not an easy decision. Uh, okay, the Bible. Hello and welcome to Book, a Bible podcast for everybody. I'm Josh Way. Today we continue our examination of the literature that emerged out of Israel's experiences in exile. In fact, these next two podcasts will explore a pair of very different texts from the later period of the exile, when the Persian Empire had supplanted Babylon as the rulers of the world. Next time we're going to look at Daniel, a wild combination of exile adventures and apocalyptic visions which look forward to the vindication and restoration of Israel. Today's text is a very different sort of story about the survival and success of the children of Israel in the often hostile lands where they found themselves living. This is the book of Esther, unique and somewhat controversial for reasons we'll explore as we move along. The first verse of Esther provides the historical setting. In the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. It goes on to describe the, quote, armies of Persia and Medea, not the Tyler Perry one. This is, then, most likely the king we know as Xerxes I, ruler of the Persian Empire in the middle of the 5th century BCE. The passing of power from one regime to the next, the rise and fall of empires, is something we know well from history and is actually one of the controlling themes of the rest of the Bible. Remember when we talked about the evolution of imperial politics in the ancient world from the kill-everything philosophy of Assyria to the more shrewd and exploitative ways of Babylon? Well, Persia represents another sea change in the world domination racket. So while Assyria left only smoldering ruins in its wake and Babylon figured out how to steal the good stuff and kidnap the important people— Persia's approach left even more of a conquered culture intact. They would allow their acquired provinces to retain their identity and their land and even their religion and would just deposit a satrap, a Persian governor or overseer, to manage that territory. Compared with the previous empires, Persia was downright progressive. They minted the world's first coins, they established the first international language, and they fostered economic growth within the lands they conquered. For their own gain, of course. This is the backdrop to the story of Esther. The people of Judah, displaced by the destruction of their homeland at the hands of the Babylonians, find themselves living in foreign places which have now become provinces of Persia. The central theme of the story is the place and identity of these Judahites, who are simultaneously subjects in the eyes of the empire and foreign interlopers in the eyes of their neighbors. The main action centers around the palace of King Ahasuerus. Queen Vashti, his bride, has publicly insulted and displeased him, and so the search begins for a new queen. Chapter 2, verse 2. Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And so the plot is set in motion, and it's time to meet our cast. Verse 5. In the citadel of Susa lived a Jew by the name of Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been exiled from Jerusalem in the group that was carried into exile along with King Jeconiah of Judah, which had been driven into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. 
He was foster father to Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was shapely and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. Now, straight off, did you notice something remarkable in that passage, a word that we haven't heard before? This is the very first biblical reference to the children of Israel as Jews. It was in fact during the Persian dispersal that the Judah people were first known as Jews. And it was most likely used at first as a sort of slur, not unlike the ancient origins of the label Hebrew. Mordecai is a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, the descendants of King Saul, who happens to have a gorgeous young niece named Esther. Now we could probably guess what happens next, but that won't be necessary. Esther, the Persian name given to the Jewish Hadassah, is one of the beautiful young virgins rounded up for the king's selection, and she so impresses her handlers that she is fast-tracked to the head of the harem. All the while, her Jewish heritage is kept a secret, which will be very important later in the story. Mordecai camps out in front of the royal compound in Susa to keep an eye on his niece and to track her progress. One day, while hanging about, he overhears two of the royal guards, eunuchs, we're told, plotting to kill the king. He reports them, and they are hanged in the public square, while Mordecai is commended for his loyalty to the throne. This, too, will become very important later on. Like most tales of Hebrew identity and survival, this is a story of providence disguised as happenstance. In chapter 3, the major conflict of the story presents itself. Sometime later, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite. He advanced him and set him higher than any of the other officials. All the king's servants in the palace gate knelt and bowed down to Haman, for that was the king's order concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel or bow down. Then the king's servants who were in the palace gate said to Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's order? When they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's resolve would prevail, for he had explained to them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel or bow down to him, Haman was filled with rage. But he had no desire to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Having been told who Mordecai's people were, Haman plotted to do away with all of the Jews, Mordecai's people, throughout the kingdom of Ahasuerus. And so we meet our bad guy. And not just any bad guy, he is the descendant of Agag, the king of Israel's old enemies, the Amalekites, who were defeated by Mordecai's ancestor Saul in events recorded in the first book of Samuel chapter 15. The prophet Samuel killed Agag, but now here is his heir, many, many miles away from Israel, in Susa. The exile has upheaved the lives and beliefs of the Jews, and here in this story it seems even to have the power to reopen old wounds and revive old enemies. Haman bides his time for five years, and the text says that he and his advisors cast Purim, or lots, to discover the right moment. When the omen says go, Haman presents his plan to the king. There is a people, he says, living among our subjects, who follow a different law, who dishonor the king. He asks Ahasuerus for permission to pass harsh new laws to punish them should they step out of line. The king grants his request, and Haman sends the decree out to all corners of the empire that all Jews are to be, quote, annihilated. Mordecai hears the news and goes into mourning, and sends word to Esther through a sympathetic eunuch. Chapter 4, verse 7. 
And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and all about the money that Haman had offered to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him the written text of the law that had been proclaimed in Susa for their destruction. And he bade him show it to Esther and inform her, and charge her to go to the king and appeal to him and plead with him for her people. Esther is in a unique position, a secret Jew and a member of the king's inner circle. But she's afraid of upsetting the king, and she tells Mordecai as much through the eunuch. Mordecai's response is a rousing speech starting in verse 13. Do not imagine that you, of all the Jews, will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows? Perhaps you have attained this royal position for just such a crisis. So Esther agrees to make an appeal to Ahasuerus. She invites the king, and Haman too, to a feast where she wines them and dines them, and the king offers to grant any request she might have, quote, up to half of my whole kingdom. But Esther doesn't pounce on the opportunity. She plays it cool. She gets them drunk and invites them to another banquet the next day. This has the effect of keeping the king happy and inflating Haman's ego. He leaves the palace smiling and whistling to himself, only to encounter Mordecai, the Jew whose refusal to bow to Haman sparked the whole plot in the first place. He storms home and hatches a new plot. He constructs a 50-foot gallows from which to hang Mordecai for all the local Jews to see. Things look grim. Did Esther miss her chance? Did she drop the ball? Well, stay tuned. That night, the king can't get to sleep, so he orders his attendants to read to him from his chronicles, the written records of his reign. And what chapter do they just happen to read for the king? The one where a subject named Mordecai foiled a plot on the king's life. Whatever happened to that guy? Just then, Haman arrives at the palace to ask for permission to hang Mordecai. The awkward scene begins in chapter 6, verse 6. Haman entered, and the king asked him, What should be done for a man whom the king wishes to honor? Haman thought to himself, Hmm, whom would the king wish to honor more than me? So Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought which the king himself has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the attire and the horse be put in the charge of one of the king's noble officials, and let the man whom the king wishes to honor be dressed up and paraded on the horse throughout the city square, while they proclaim before him, This is what is done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. Quick then, the king said to Haman, grab the garb and the horse as you have said, and do this to Mordecai the Jew, who sits in the king's gate. Don't leave out anything that you have proposed. Shocked, embarrassed, and angry, Haman has no choice but to carry out the king's decree. Mordecai is dolled up and paraded around the city in a royal procession, while Haman himself calls out the words of praise. With the sting of this fresh humiliation still on his backside, Haman returns to the palace to attend Esther's second banquet. After dinner, when the king is good and drunk once again, Hadassah makes her pitch. Chapter 7, verse 3. If you will do me the favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me and my wish and my people as my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, massacred, and exterminated. 
Had we only been sold as slaves, both men and women, I would have kept silent, for the adversaries not worthy of the king's trouble. King Ahasuerus demanded of Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who dared to do this? The adversary and enemy, replied Esther, is the evil Haman. And Haman cringed in terror before the king and the queen. Haman's bad day gets worse, and the king has him hanged from the very gallows the villain had built for Mordecai. And speaking of Mordecai, the old man is summoned to the palace and given all of Haman's property and power, including the king's signet, by which he's able to repeal Haman's decree and save the Jews. Chapter 8, verse 15. Mordecai left the king's presence in royal robes of blue and white with a magnificent crown of gold and a mantle of fine linen and purple wool, and the city of Susa rang with joyous cries. The Jews enjoyed light and gladness, joy and honor, and in every province and every city when the king's command and decree arrived, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the people in the land professed themselves to be Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Unfortunately, it seems that this fear, combined with Haman's anti-Jewish rhetoric, has spread throughout the empire. The next chapter tells of the violent clashes between Jews and other Persian subjects, with 500 men killed on the first day in the capital city alone. In every corner of the empire, the Jews prevail and secure their freedom. Well, their freedom to continue being subjects of the Persian empire, but still, it's something. The book ends with the establishment of a new holiday a feast called Purim, named after the lots cast by Haman and his cronies, which is still celebrated today by Jews worldwide. They put on costumes and they read the book of Esther and the kids twirl noisemakers to drown out the sound of Haman's name. And that's the book of Esther, a tale not just of survival, but of retaliation and prevalence. And this is part of the reason why the book has been something of a hot potato throughout both Jewish and especially Christian histories. The apparently gleeful vengeance exacted by the Jews in the story, coupled with the surprising fact that God is never mentioned in the entire text, has led some to question its place as a book of the Bible. Martin Luther famously insulted the book, stating that it contained no, quote, gospel content. So what to make of all that? Well, while a case might be made that the book is little more than a violent revenge story, with the enemies of Israel being massacred and destroyed with their own weapons, the historical setting and the machinations of the plot pretty much necessitate the violence. It's only a real problem if you insist that every corner of the Bible must conform to a certain moral or theological standard. Is this a Bible lesson or an historical witness to the horrors of exile? I'm afraid most religious readers and teachers have felt obligated to see it as the former. Regarding the godlessness of the book, to claim, as many have, that this is a secular intruder into the otherwise religious canon of Bible books is to deeply misunderstand this and many other Jewish texts. The book may not mention Israel's God, but his presence and his intervention are assumed at every turn. Remember, this is a story of providence disguising itself as happenstance. Hadassah happens to be beautiful and to be chosen by the king, and Haman happens to be an Amalekite, and Mordecai happens to save the king's life, and on and on and on. Every coincidence in the story is, to the right kind of ears, a loud and proud proclamation that the God of the Jews is still with them in this strange foreign place. 
We'll trace these themes and tensions, God's providence for the Jews in exile, and the question of violent confrontations with pagan enemies throughout the remaining books of the Hebrew Bible and right on into the New Testament, which is more fundamentally about these issues than most of us in the Western Christian world have ever imagined. This has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share, like, blog, tweet, tweep, creep, tumble, stumble, chumble, crackle, frackle, spackle, and fluze it to your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, you can email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to answer it here on the podcast. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. That's it for me, Bible Pals. I'll catch you next time.